Welcome back, everyone. So today is a special episode, a day we normally don't hold it on. We're going to have two special guests, Roman Balmakov, you might know him from Facts Matter, also Joe Hanneman, who you know from our documentary, uh, The Real Story of January 6th. So this is a special episode, and we're tiptoeing around some of the censorship on YouTube. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do a short episode on YouTube, but we will be doing a full episode on Epic TV, and if you're on YouTube, we are completely opening up Epic TV for this episode because they will block us and probably delete the video if we say too much. So join us on Epic TV. There's no paywall, no subscription, no nothing today. Uh, you can watch this completely free, but we can't talk about a lot of what I want to talk about today on YouTube. So uh, we'll be doing maybe five, ten minutes on YouTube. Then we'll be jumping over to there. Again, it's totally open today, so come join us. We're going, to have, we're going to be showing some video footage about January 6th that I think has not been shown publicly yet. We're also going to have some in-depth conversations about some of the information that's being kept from the public. This is a very important episode, and so I'm glad you're all here to join us. Now, that said, let me, I'm going to bring on our first guest, Roman Balmakov, who worked on me with the documentary, The Real Story, January 6th. Again, the host of Facts Matter. As you can see, actually, actually too, I'm, in, I'm actually in Washington right now at our office in Washington, D.C. And this is not a green screen. We're actually right by the Capitol building. Now, folks, again, um, right now, uh, we, we've published the full documentary, The Real Story of January 6th. If you haven't watched it yet, please watch it. If you have watched it, please share that documentary. Tell a friend about it. Um, really, we're trying to get the real story out. And if you've seen it or you want to see it, I think you'll know that really what the, what the public has been shown about this is a lie, just plain and simple. What the public has been shown about January 6th is an absolute lie. And the scary part is, if you understand the history of what we call menticide, mental genocide, it actually does follow the clear, a clear precedent that's been set both by, funny enough, the Nazis and the burning of the Reichstag, and also under the Communist Party of China. And so what they, did, what they did, for example, following the Korean War, where they got people basically mentally tortured them. They convinced them that something that did not happen did happen, made them confess to false crimes, and then used the accumulation of those false confessions to manufacture a false narrative. That false narrative is then used as the foundation to make arguments, one, for the political, political campaigns they want to launch, and two, for the, really, the takeover and the elimination of their adversaries through the new party. Again, the Nazis did this play-by-play play after the burning of the Reichstag. Uh, the Communist Party of China did it, for example, by forcing confessions on prisoners of war during the, during the Korean War against Americans, convincing the Chinese people and using propaganda, saying that America wanted to launch germ war attacks on China. Unfortunately, the reality is the Democrats are doing the exact same thing, play by play, with the January 6th incident. And I want to really, again, tell the full story of what's happening. Again, and today I'm going to be showing you actual video evidence of some of what we have. The documentary we have, The Real Story of January 6th, is really the accumulation, I think, the consolidation of a lot of the evidence on that. And so, again, if you haven't watched it yet, be sure to check it out. All right, that's it. Let me bring out uh, Roman Balmakov. We'll go a bit into this, but then we'll, we'll be jumping over to Epic TV because, again, YouTube, if we talk about January 6th too much, if I show you the videos, they will delete our video. So we have to be a little careful on YouTube. 
we will be going just a few more minutes on YouTube and then jumping over exclusively to Epic TV. So let's bring on Roman now for this. Hey, Roman, good, Josh, to, see good to see you. And nice, nice set you have there as well. Yes, yeah, since I'm sure your your longtime viewers will notice that since you're in Washington D.C., I get the privilege of being here in your set in New York. And if anybody's wondering, the drink today is office coffee with milk. <laughs> hey, I also actually have office coffee with milk today. A bit, a bit of a switch up. <laughs> yeah. Well, Roman, you know, you, you of course, you know, you and I worked together on that documentary, The Real Story, January 6th, and you did a, you did in particular the interview with Jake Lang, and I know you were talking to some other people on the side as well. One thing that I'm kind of looking at is what a lot of people are telling me, which is a lot of people claim that they've, they've admitted to crimes that they believe they did not commit. And they're doing it really because they're facing like 20 years in prison, 24 years in prison, some of them. And they're offered basically a plea deal on a slap on the wrist charge. And some of them are not taking it. It was, it was the story of Jake Lang. Was he one of those individuals? Like, what are you seeing with that? Yeah, that's one of the things that I asked him about. He because he was offered a plea deal already, um, but he decided to to not take it. And I asked him pretty pretty specifically about it. I said, hey, "Listen, Jake, you're about to face a jury trial in Washington D.C. Uh, come January of 2023. Those people are not likely to be too sympathetic to you, right?" Because uh, regardless of anything else, of course, you know, it's a jury of his peers, but Washington, D.C. voted something like 92 percent for Hillary Clinton. So generally, the jury pool might just not be that sympathetic to, um, to to someone in Jake Lang's position. So I asked him, why don't you just take the plea deal? I mean, it could be better than uh, the potentially potentially facing decades behind bars. And he said, well, I, I don't want to do that because I have faith in God. That's what he told me that, um, you know. I'm going to just state the truth during the trial, have the judge hear it, have the jury hear it, and then it'll be in God's hands. Um, so that's what he told me. But on the flip side, I, I, I'm, I, geez, I, I feel really sympathetic to not only him, but the other, the other uh, J6 detainees who've taken the plea deal. Because, I mean, just, just really think about it. And I hope the audience can, can really think about it as well. January 6th of 2021 was so long ago. You could, you could since then, meet a girl, date her, get married, and have a baby all in that period of time, right? That's, that's how long ago that January 6th of 2021 was, just an example. But that's how long these people have been sitting in prison for. And so when they're offered a plea deal, when, and a lot of them are in solitary confinement, and so when they're offered a plea deal, a lot of them just take it because they're sitting in solitary confinement, they're facing the prospect of a, of a hostile, potentially hostile jury trial. It's uh, yeah, it's a tough choice. It's a, it's a tough choice to make. Well, you know, that was one of the things that Steve Bannon brought up and Alan Dershowitz in particular. So, you know, Steve Bannon, of course, um, he's being charged with contempt because he refused to go and testify before this congressional committee that even is arguably unconstitutional in and of itself because it's not technically bipartisan, right? They, they, the Democrats refused the Republican appointees and they, they chose two individuals who basically vote with them because they voted to impeach Trump. Technically unconstitutional, although that needs to be argued I think more, more thoroughly, like maybe in court one day. But Alan Dershowitz was arguing, and this is where it's going to be interesting with Bannon, that basically um, it's, impossible to have an, it's impossible to have a jury pool that is not poisoned. And the, the important part of that is, again as you mentioned, it's like 92% voted Hillary Clinton maybe even more than that, maybe Democrat in general. 
I think they're saying like 98% roughly in Washington, D.C. And because this is such a deeply politicized issue, you're not going to find any jury member who has not been, I think, exposed to information or, you know, on one side or the other that, is, that has really altered their opinion ahead of time. And in normal cases like that where the jury pool is poisoned, where you can't have, you cannot have uh, really a fair trial before a jury because they have predisposed kind of understandings and beliefs, they will either move that out of state or find another solution for it. And so it's almost impossible to have an honest, a really, uh, I'd say, an unbiased jury and a fair trial with this. And you know, Roman, I know you, you were looking some, into some of this too. Um, the other part of it too, just briefly, Dr. Simone Gold, Brandon Strzok, you know, they both, of course, pled guilty. But both of them have told us previously, and there's even video evidence to support it, that they believe they were innocent on all charges. And they've said, you know, Dr. Simone Gold just went to prison this last week. Brandon Strzok got off on a plea deal. Um, as well. Uh, Simone Gold, of course, criminal trespassing, but they dropped like 20-year charges. They were, they were accusing her of assaulting police officers, uh, other things like that. There was no video, there was no evidence even submitted in the trial supporting those charges, meaning they pressed charges against her without evidence, which even in itself is not normal, not normal, not normally something you could actually do. And, of course, Brandon well, Strzok had video evidence showing his innocence, and he still pled guilty because he didn't want to face 20 years in prison. But, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this, Roman? Well, so, I mean, you mentioned the case of Dr. Gold, who there was no video evidence. But it seems like the prosecutors are getting creative even with the video evidence that they have. I, I know you're about to have Joe Hanneman on, on this program um, in, in a bit. But he did an, ama an amazing uh, he published an amazing article i believe just yesterday uh, on the epic times showing how there was a sheriff's deputy uh, his last name was maccabee and at the appellate level in the dc uh, circuit court the prosecution showed a video to the judge which purportedly showed him laying on top of a police officer assaulting him and allegedly you know pushing him towards the quote-unquote terrorists, which is the name that they're giving to the riot, which is the name that the judge in the case called the rioters, right? So the prosecution showed this videotape of this sheriff's deputy laying on top of a police officer on January the 6th, um, and they used that as the justification for saying he, he's a very dangerous man, you should, you should lock him up, uh, even pending trial without bond. However, uh, the article by Joe, it was, it was just, uh, again, this, this is what real journalism is. He found the audio for that video, which was not played in court. And the audio shows this sheriff's deputy who was on top of the cop saying, hey, I'm with you guys. I want to help you. I want to protect you. Let's not get up until it's time. You know, let's not get up until uh, until it's safe, etc." He was saying things like that because he himself is a law enforcement officer. He sees what's going on and he's trying to help the cop who's laying underneath him. But the prosecution, they didn't show, they didn't play the audio. They only showed the video, which looks damning until you play it in addition with the audio. So you 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 had the examples of uh, you know Dr. Gold and uh, Brandon Straka. But even when you have video evidence, the prosecution seems to be very activist and very loose with the facts, such that they, they would actually do something like that, right? So I mean, maybe I'm naive. I always I always want to just assume the best of our judicial system. But with examples like this, it's like it's a little bit difficult to to assume impartiality here. Um, and then uh, g going on the fact of, uh, you know, having an impartial jury, it it's tough. I mean, l listen, who, who in the country doesn't know about January 6th, right? It's like maybe some hermit in the mountains, uh, in the mountains of uh, North Carolina or something who's just going, you know, from cave to cave for the last 30 years, doesn't know about it. But everyone's heard about January the 6th. So 
it, it's a bit hard to get a jury who is not, you know, quote unquote poisoned. But at the very least, you would want to kind of a jury, to pull from a jury pool that has potentially kind of different ideological bends so they, they, they have a more robust view of the event, right? When you pull from a Washington, D.C. jury pool, it's like, ah, you know, like, like you said, 92% Hillary Clinton. I think it was something like even 95% for Joe Biden. It's like, it, yeah, it's unfortunately, it does not seem like we'll get a, well, they will get a fair trial, just like what we saw in the Durham, in the Durham case. Well, on the note, too, even on the video footage you mentioned, uh, that, so that guy, again, is being charged with assaulting a police officer. The prosecutors show this video. They remove the audio during the video, but they also, in addition to removing the audio, they also cut out the context. Basically, mm -hmm. these two guys, and of course, you look at January 6th, it was a bit, it was police and protesters kind of mixed together. They, they actually fell down. And uh, the guy, of course, fell on the police officer, and he's like, okay, you okay, you okay? And the audio, you okay? All right, we'll get up together. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll watch out for you. Don't worry, I got your back. And he's telling this to the guy. They fell down together. It's not like he tackled them or something like that. And then in the audio, he's, of course, stating his intention. And the police officer is, of course, not doesn't seem at all to be afraid of him in any way. And so it's, it's yeah. ridiculous the way they're altering the evidence in order to make their cases. And unfortunately, it's being used politically as well. All right, so we're going to cut off on YouTube because I want to show you, we actually have footage today I'm going to show you. They will not let us show you this on YouTube. Um, we're All right, so click on, click, on that button, click, on, click on that button below if you want to check out Epic TV. We'll, yeah, we'll so we're, we're actually, we're not, we pulled down the paywall today. There's, you can jump and watch us on Epic TV. No paywall, no subscription, no email. Come join us because I want to show you this evidence, and we cannot show you it on YouTube. They will not let us show you it. Uh, they will delete our video if we show you it. We have several clips I want to go over with you all today. So again, folks, go in the description below, grab that link, join us on Epic TV. They will not let us show you the evidence on YouTube. So come join us now, Epic TV. We'll continue this discussion. All right, Roman, we are in the clear. Enjoy, breathe the, breathe the fresh air of freedom and we can show some actual <sighs> real evidence now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wild stuff, folks. You know, actually, Roman and I were both reporting on January 6th. Uh, I, I think I was there early morning. I, and, of course, I was there later, too. But I know you were reporting more into the night. And um, I, I know YouTube deleted our video. I don't, I don't know if that was intentional or it was because the video was too long. But we had probably more than, like, 20 hours of video footage, I think, that day. Uh, you know, what did, what, I know I was at the Trump speaking event, and I was over at the Capitol afterwards um, in the parking lot, actually just, you know, waiting for my team, looking for my team. But you were actually reporting at the Capitol. What did you see that day? So when we started walking from Trump's speech towards the Capitol, um, I was just doing uh, man on the street interviews all the way there. That was just what I was doing all day. And the, the first sign that something was happening was that there was a bunch of uh, maybe at 3, I always get the timeline wrong, somewhere between 1 and 3 p.m. Um, I mean, I'm sure um, you, you guys have the timeline online. Um, you started seeing uh, police cars with sirens blaring, heading straight for the Capitol. So I'm like, well, you know, maybe a fight broke out. I thought maybe maybe somebody got violent or maybe somebody had heat stroke or uh, a cold stroke because it was a freezing day. Um, but then we started seeing people streaming back. Some of them kind of bloodied up. They had their shirts ripped open. 
Uh, so I thought, okay, well, something is going on. So I started interviewing those people, and that's when they started telling us, well, you know, they're firing tear gas at us. We, we tried to uh, get into the Capitol building, et cetera, et cetera. So my camera crew and I were like, wow, you know, something's going on. So we rushed over to the uh, to the Capitol building, and uh, and we found it exactly like how it was in the footage. You know, lots of Trump flags, people kind of gathered right around the Capitol on the scaffoldings on top. Um, it was quite a scene. So we stayed there. Uh, after the police were pushing people back, one of our camera uh, cameramen, he was pushed. Actually, I'm glad he didn't get hurt. He was pushed two stories down. So one of the police officers pushed him and his camera. So he fell back uh, off of one of the scaffoldings, uh, two levels down. So, uh, but luckily he was fine. I think he landed on his backpack. But when when the sun went down and when everybody got pushed pushed back, uh, you know, with smoke screen with batons and everybody was pushed uh, began to get pushed back out out of the plaza, and uh, the sun started setting, I started to interview people who were kind of streaming out of the Capitol, and, and I was just asking them like, hey, what did you you know what happened? What, what were you even trying to achieve? And a lot of them just had indignation. A lot of them didn't really have any concrete agenda the, the, you know nobody said like oh we wanted to you know achieve anything like have a, like a concrete goal we wanted to you know as the media portrays it, like we want to overthrow the government or we wanted to i don't know like inst install trump or something like that a lot of them were just like hey this is our house you know we wanted to show them our voice we wanted to show them that they're not listening we wanted to present the evidence to them etc of, of uh, the election fraud and like, to be honest with you it's it's kind of a funny funny experience because you, I'm sure your viewers have seen that very famous um, CNN Chiron, right? Where the guy is standing there uh, for CNN. He has a building behind them that's on fire. And the Chiron says, fire, fiery but mostly peaceful protest, right? Now, that's a meme. Everybody jokes about that. But honestly, having been at quite a few protests myself, the irony is that, like, that's kind of true. Like, I've been in many protests where you could say it's fiery but mostly peaceful because... Like, yeah, technically, like there's a fire and like people are like maybe looting or something like that. But even if you're like a, a small woman, you can call your mom and be like, hey, mom, like I'm at this protest. And she's like, oh, I'm so worried about you. How's it going? And you're like, ah, technically, I'm actually fine. Like no one's no one's really harassing me. Nothing's going on. So ironically, you can be fiery, but peaceful. I think the problem is that the mainstream media in this country, but around the world kind of cherry picks. They're like, well, this one is fiery, but mostly peaceful. This one, not fiery, but mostly dangerous. You know, so it's like, so it's like that. So I guess that that was a long preface to say, like, it, it was kind of like that. It was very, like, the visuals were just, like, stunning and crazy, but generally it was it was peaceful. You know, you could just walk around and, and not feel threatened at all on that day. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my experience. Yeah, and it was the same for me. I mean, if any, I mean, it was, like, families walking by, people just taking selfies with me. It's like I was in the parking lot of the Capitol building. There was a lot of people there as well. I mean, and I, I saw people who I would say were agitators as well, people who really did not seem normal. And for example, one of the first things I saw was walking up to the Capitol building. There was a woman just standing up on this like concrete barricade with a bullhorn and she was encouraging people to go to the Capitol and she was also encouraging people to like stand in the road and block the police cars. And people were just walking by and ignoring her. But her behavior was really, really bizarre. And I started noticing other people like that as well that day. You know, actually, so I, I one of our viewers sent us a video because now we're, I want to show you, I want to show you this in Roman, I want to talk to you about this. Remember how I said that Trump actually did, in fact, tell people to go home that day. He did, in fact, tell people to be peaceful. 
Twitter deleted his video and then locked his account. And we actually found that video. Uh, luckily, Al Jazeera had it of all places. Now, this is important because of this. The current narrative being pushed, I'm, I'm, you can see the Capitol building behind me actually. Again, I'm in our Washington office. The narrative being pushed right now by this Jan 6 committee is that there was a dereliction of duty, that Trump did nothing. I mean, they contradict their earlier claims that he was like trying to like commandeer the car and grab the steering wheel from the driver to go to the, to go to the building. But now the new narrative is dereliction of duty. Um, nonsense on a few different levels. One of, the, one of the big ones being that he actually authorized the deployment of the National Guard, and that was not taken by Nancy Pelosi, Muriel Bowser, or, or Chuck Schumer, or sorry, uh, Mitch McConnell. And of course, Trump does not have the ability as the president, nor does any president have the ability to just deploy the National Guard. They can authorize it, but it needs to be accepted by, again, you know, the officials in that area. Total nonsense, it's a lie. But the other big lie that day is that Trump, again, didn't tell people to be peaceful, that he was somehow instigating the crowd. This video disproves that, I believe. And this is the video that, you, that Twitter deleted and then locked Trump's account afterwards. So I'm going to show you this video right now. This is Trump's pain. This is Trump. I know you hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. Now, folks, you tell me why did Twitter delete that video? Why did they lock Trump's account after he published that video? And why are they telling people right now that Trump did not try to you know, prevent the violence, that he did nothing? If he, if he did nothing, why did they delete that? I mean, Roman, what are your thoughts on this? I remember, I haven't seen that video in a very long time, but I remember when um, Twitter kicked him off, they published a pretty long blog, blog post detailing their rationale for kicking him off. And I, I, I remember I had this peculiar feeling when I was reading their rationale. I was trying to find it real quick uh, on, on my computer, but I, I, I couldn't pull it up fast enough. But basically, alongside that video, Trump posted, uh, I believe, two tweets, two messages, essentially saying, like, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you're all great patriots, but, you know, you need to go home now, uh, don't be violent, et cetera, something along that line, right? Basically the same ethos that he just expressed in that video. But then the Twitter blog post, they they did a meta-analysis of, like, word by word of his tweet, and they're like, I, I forget the exact their exact analysis, but it was something along the lines of like, right here, when Trump starts his message by calling these people great patriots, that's a dog whistle for them to continue. You know, so, so it, they, they like hyper analyzed it to the point where they derived the exact opposite meaning from what he said, because he said, you know, 
you guys, you know, you have a lot of emotions, you have a lot of further, something along the line, you have a lot of further, uh, but you should stop this, go home, you know, be peaceful, we'll win this, you know, peacefully, that's what he said along along that line. But then Twitter analyzed it to be the exact opposite, and they, and they kicked him off the platform based on that analysis. And I just... Um, when I was reading that analysis and I, when I did that episode uh, on that analysis back in January of, of last year, I was just really thinking about how history is written. You know, history is written by the victors. That's like, that's, a, that's an old adage, right? And I was just thinking that for, for me and for anybody that, that's privy to this information, they'll look at it and they'll go like, yeah, that's a bit of a stretch to, to derive that meaning from what he said. But our kids and the grand, our grandkids in their textbooks, it'll just say, yeah, Trump uh, issued a call to arms on Twitter or something along that line, very likely. They'll say Trump, you know, exacerbated the, the situation on Twitter. He sent a message. They won't show the message. They'll just say it was a bad message, something along that line. And uh, and that, that'll be the story as it'll be written. Uh, it's it's pretty dangerous what, what's what's happening here, how they're... Because they're, they're playing a very dangerous game because, for one, it's messing with the historical record. But two, it's like, you know, the, the people on the left who are kind of in, in you know, in... in in the position where they hold the lever, levers of power, I mean, this will eventually turn around on them. Unfortunately, like no, no one, no one should have this kind of power where they can do a meta analysis of a president's uh, text, say, say it has the exact opposite meaning of, of what it says on the surface, and kick kick him off the platform. Because I mean, eventually that type of thing will turn around, and and who, who knows what what will happen? You know what I mean? Yeah, and folks, again, you know, I, I really, you know, we t we take this evidence. And we present all of it in our documentary. So again, I'm going to be showing you some video clips in just a bit. I'm going to have Jill Hanneman on in just a second. And I, we've actually gotten a few clips that have not yet, I believe, been seen by the public. At least some of them probably have never been seen by the public. I want to show you some of the evidence that we did not include in the documentary. Uh, but again, if you want to see the whole picture, be sure to check out the documentary, The Real Story, January 6th. Roman and I, of course, worked on that, as did a few of others, uh, others here at Epic Times. Um, and also, folks, help get the word out because, I mean, as Roman said, they're trying to rewrite history with this. They're trying to reestablish this false narrative of history and use that really as a political game. Um, I mentioned, I mean, a great book I'm reading right now, The Rape of the Mind, Merlot, um, about menticide, mental genocide. One of the important things with this is that this has been done in the past, play by play. What you're seeing right now has been done in the past. This is play by play exactly what the Nazis did to gain power with the burning of the Reichstag building, the eliciting of false, uh, false claims of um, guilt. By, there was a Dutch individual they accused of it. It came out later the Nazis themselves had burned down the building and they used that for a political coup essentially to mislead the public and to gain power. Play by play exactly what we're seeing. Hey, Roman, thank you uh, for being here with us. It's, we're going to bring on Joe in a minute, but yeah, thanks again, Roman. For sure. And again, to any of the viewers who haven't watched the documentary, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's a, it, it sort of sets the historical record straight, in my opinion. And also, if you have watched it, consider sharing it with your friends and family, because, I mean, the more people that watch it, the more, at the very least, people will question what, what's being told to them on, on, on the Internet, and they'll have some concrete evidence to, to push back against some of the narr narratives that are being pushed out there. Yeah. Hey, Roman. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. All right, folks, I'm going to bring on Joe Hanneman. <clears throat> Those of you who watched the documentary, um, Joe is the individual who I'm sitting down with and we're reviewing a lot of the video evidence. 
Um, Joe is the main reporter at Epic Times on January 6th. He's an investigative journalist. He's done incredible work. Uh, previously, he's worked for Catholic publications investigating child abuse, um, some of the cases of child molestation and some of the weird things with that. He's a fantastic reporter, great investigative reporter, and he's focused now on January 6th, and his story's interesting, and I want to talk about some of this with him. Um, let's bring Joe on now, and we'll go into some of that, and then go over some of the video evidence that we have not yet shown. Hey, Joe, good seeing you again. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, Joe, so I, I mentioned, of course, that you and I did the documentary together as well, The Real Story of January 6th. And, you know, I think your story on this is interesting. I, I was mentioning briefly that you worked for a Catholic publication previously. Part of your job was to investigate uh, some of the cases of child abuse. Could you tell us just briefly some of that history? Because, you know, really as an investigative reporter, you've been kind of fearless on, on this front. Yeah, this is this goes back a few years, but uh, I did do a six-part series uh, on the sexual corruption, the pederasty, uh, with uh, you know the profusion of uh, homosexual priests and uh, and ones who were were predators, and so we we looked into you know one infamous case in Illinois uh, of a bishop uh, who preyed on uh, very vulnerable people, and so that that is information that a lot of people did not want out and has been censored over the years so we took a we took a deep dive look at that and i think it opened a lot of people's eyes to something that has been going on in the catholic church you know for a couple of decades now uh three decades or more so that 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 was one of the uh most complicated projects that i've worked on but it really brought some truth to light yeah, well, I mean, it's incredible work, and it's something that we know happens, but everyone's too afraid to talk about, frankly. And so, Joe, I mean, you, you did great work on that. I know after that, of course, you did join Epic Times, and so now you're one of our investigative reporters, and you were, of course, assigned to cover January 6th. And I understand that at first you didn't really, you know, you, the information you'd been exposed to about January 6th was more what the public was being shown. And you went through a process of realizing this is maybe a lot bigger than what the public was being told. What was that process you went through? Well, I mean, I, I started in terms of a place of knowledge similar to what most Americans did. You know, I was following things on the Internet on January 6th uh, and seeing the, the, you know, a broad swath of different coverage, but uh, the legacy media and how that was, how that was packaged really from the get-go but I had really no conception of how deep this issue was going to run until I you know I did a, a cover story for the anniversary and that started to really open my eyes that there were a whole lot of unanswered questions you know we called it a legacy of troubling questions that, that was really the banner this whole thing went under and the, you know, the more I started digging into it and some of this, the human stories that we, we've told over the past six months, uh, it just raised more and more questions. So it, it was a, definitely it was a, a revelation to me, and I certainly underappreciated at the time just how much uh, there was to it. And as, I, as I've mentioned many times, the, the more that we dig, the more questions it raises. We answer a few and we get ten more. 
Yeah. Well, you know, what was kind of the, the moment where that clicked for you, where you realized, wow, this is not what we've been told it was? You know, you said, you said there's these troubling questions. What was that moment? Well, really, when, uh, when I found out uh, about the story of Victoria White, who was uh, really severely beaten in the yeah, we, uh, Lower we, West. We, we, we show her story in depth in the documentary, by yes. the way. But yeah, yeah go we ahead, profile sorry. her, uh, and it's, it's a shocking story. And after uh, talking to her attorney and then analyzing the security footage, uh, the video from the tunnel and some other video, was just could not believe what I was seeing. Uh, seeing a, a supervisor of the Metropolitan Police Department just over overhand with the steel baton, beating her in the skull, and uh, you know, we uh, it, we went through it frame by frame. Picked out I believe it was 39 blows of different types, most from the baton, but some from a closed fist right to the side of her face, and uh, that. That really, it's it's stunning. It's still stunning. Uh, so that was kind of the the moment that said there's there's more to this because I had not heard anything about that before that time. Yeah, well, and I know you know one thing we also go into in the documentary is a story of the suspicious actors, and I think this has been kind of put in the area of like kind of understood. I think pretty well understood, but also it sounds like conspiracy when you talk about suspicious actors. I mean. We, we, we again go pretty in-depth on that. People know about Ray Epps, for example, but really I think what you've been showing is that there was weird things going on there, and at the very least, I think most people would actually agree, even on the conservative side, even on the Trump supporter side, that many of these people actually should be investigated. Like, who are these people? What, what do we know about them? Well, I mean, it's interesting because the uh, one of the defense attorneys who has really made this his mission uh, to investigate the suspicious actor issue, uh, I think at times feels like he's he's being ridiculed uh, just in the public. That that this sounds like tinfoil hat territory. Uh, but if you take the time, as I've done, to follow uh, what he has uncovered, uh, it's it's bizarre. It's just nothing, not, no other way to put it. Uh, where we have uh, breach points on the east side of the Capitol, where the police line. Was, was breached, very lightly defended steps, but the group that did the breaching, they were all made up of the, these suspicious actors. These are led people by, that have led not- partly by Ray Epps too, yeah, go ahead. Bro. Well, Ray, yeah, Ray was not on the, on the east side, but this group, um, this group was uh, people who have not been charged or arrested, and in most cases, all we know about them is a hashtag that they were assigned on sedition hunters. So, uh, and, and I know he's continued to investigate this and, and is gonna be having even more come out on this, but you know, it raises a lot of questions. How did these people get there? Uh, they seem to be working in concert. So, uh, you know, what, what exactly was their role and who was behind it? And that those are the things that we're trying to figure out right now. Yeah. Well, and the other weird thing is too is we actually we, we don't include this in the documentary, but something we, we're kind of, there's some stuff that we're looking into. We did we only included in the documentary what is pretty solid, you know. We kind of understand it. The, the, the suspicious actors are I think it's fair to say because uh, these are people who on video committed crimes but are not being investigated. These are the people who actually did what the Democrats claimed happened that day. And not only are they not being investigated, but if you talk about them, it's like it's not even it's not even a subject. I think even at the committee hearings, which 
really is very suspicious in and of itself, which leads people to believe that maybe, you know, maybe it was staged. And Joe, I know that we had some video evidence that we did not show. One of the very weird scenes is the cap, the doors of the Capitol building, where you have these guys running up the steps, and in one shot the doors are closed, and in another shot the doors are open. This was something you and I were talking about that was just weird. I mean, why was that weird in your opinion? Well, we had been told various things, and uh, the prosecutors have said various things in court and uh, in the discovery process to defense attorneys that they typically did not close the doors, uh, possibly due to you know, fire escape hazards, uh, but those doors were closed as the crowd gathered at the bottom of those east steps. Uh, and in fact, uh, as the police line was breached, those doors were closed. And in fact, we've seen images where the crowd was gathered outside the doors and they were still closed. And just, just in the past uh, 10 days, I've, I've seen video uh, showing the doors opening. And they opened uh, with incredible ease. I, I, I don't know how it is supposed to work when these things are automated, but uh, it looked like you could have pushed it with your finger and the whole you know these are 20,000 pound doors 17 feet high uh, you wouldn't think it would be that easy to push them open so you know yeah. and this is something defense attorneys want to know too is how were those open was it done remotely uh, you know versus somehow pried open uh, I haven't seen any video evidence of that but uh, so eventually those were opened, and, and the question is why? Because everything that happened after that and people that streamed in uh, caused all sorts of issues inside the Capitol. Yeah, and folks, you, these are thick doors. You, you would need, like, artillery to, to bust things. You, you need to shoot these things with, like, a howitzer to break through them. And so it does raise some real questions on that. Now, Joe, uh, we have several video clips I want to go over with you. Um, I know you chose some of these videos to discuss today. I believe some of these are, have never been shown publicly before. Um, real briefly before we go into that, there's one other thing I want to talk about, which is I know that there were film crews on the ground with these individuals, these suspicious actors who were breaching the Capitol, and that's also kind of suspicious. I mean, we can kind of understand that maybe there were supposed to be media there, but these guys were there while Trump was still speaking. They were with these people breaching the Capitol, and they're some weird name. So who were these film crews? I believe there were four of them. There were at least four. There may have been six or seven. Uh, some of them were international. I know there was a there was a uh, film crew from France, and their footage I know was subpoenaed uh, by the Department of Justice. There was a filmmaker from Copenhagen who was uh, made, eventually made a documentary about Roger Stone. Uh, and we had uh, a filmmaker who uh, does work for National Geographic. You know, these are commercial film operations, and typically you have to have a permit from the Capitol Police to do commercial filming on the Capitol grounds. And, uh, you know, yet in, in most of the hotspots, you saw very high-end broadcast equipment recording things from the first breach point right on up, you know, to the, uh, to the Columbus doors and all that went on up there. Uh, and in some cases, you had multiples uh, focusing on the same thing. So that, you know, I know this was, this day was a news event, but these crews, uh, many of them were there at 9 a.m., uh, well before the president uh, spoke. So, uh, and 
that footage, I believe all of that is has been subpoenaed and the January 6th Commission has, and certainly the Justice Department has, and we've only seen small bits of it. Yeah. Now, Joe, let's jump into some of the video footage that we have. And again, folks, a lot of, we, I can't show, I mean, good thing we're at TV. If we showed you this on YouTube, they would delete our video. We have footage that has not been seen before. Uh, let's go to the first clip now. So what, what did we just see there? Why did you select this clip for us? Well, this was late in the afternoon uh, outside the Lower West Terrace Tunnel, which had, uh, you know, the, really some of the worst violence of the day. That's where Roseanne Boylan went down and eventually died. Um, and this was after 5 p.m. when they decided to clear the people out of there. Uh, and in some ways, what they're doing is you know, more traditional for crowd control. But the problem came when they started uh, launching these incendiaries is that pushed people up against a railing and there were only a couple ways down on the sides. And as you saw there with uh, the, you know, the thick yellow smoke, um, that there was a bit of a stampede. And indeed, you know, you saw a couple of people that had fallen down and uh, could have easily turned into a, a similar tragedy that we saw uh, earlier in the afternoon when Roseanne got crushed. Um, so it, it's, I think there was a, a, they may have averted something by, you know, by people moving more orderly than you might have expected, but there was still, looked like there were some real scary moments for the people that were, uh, that were being moved out of the area. Yeah, well, you know, that was one thing that we, so first of all, you know, the, the death of Roseanne Boylan, we show that in the documentary pretty in depth. There were four deaths that day, uh, of course, Ashley Babbitt, Roseanne Boylan, and then two individuals who died of heart complications. We show evidence suggesting that actually these may not have been natural deaths, that they may have been killed by police use of, uh, unjustified police use of force. Again, that's in the documentary, I won't go over all that, but what you're showing right here, Joe, I think this ties into one of the big things we do kind of expose in the documentary, which is the use of munitions by the police in ways that actually would violate the law. And as you mentioned, the way they were using these munitions, they're not arresting people, they're not dispersing people, they're instigating the crowd, and they're also using them in irresponsible ways that could, in some cases, could have caused like mass casualty incidents where people flee and they trample each other and people die in mass, which is why you don't do that normally. And, and I mean, what, what are your thoughts? I know we talked to Stan Keffert about this a bit. What are your thoughts about like the potential that people could have been trampled and killed because of that? Well, uh, what's, what Stan tells us in the documentary is that- And, and briefly, you know, uh, Stan, Stan Keffert is the number one expert on use of force. Uh, courtrooms, calling in experts, he's the number one guy that will have testify on that. And so we have in the documentary, but yeah, go ahead. What is, what, tell us what Stan said about this. 
Well, he said if, if the goal was really to disperse the crowd, that they, the police would have set up a skirmish line and would have moved out, possibly even in, in a V formation, pushing people back and, and using some of those uh, incendiary devices, whether they have uh, uh, tear gas in them or even the, the rubber projectiles that sting uh, at the feet or the ankles that are designed to set people to, to flight. Uh, and anyone that did not obey that, they pull them through the line, pass them back to an officer who, you know, puts strip cuffs on them and, and arrests them, and they're taken somewhere else to be processed. That's, that's uh, you know, would be a typical approach. But what was going on here is that these munitions were being launched from above, you know, on, on the, t the terrace level above, and also from the ground level. Some things were being hand thrown into the crowd. These uh, uh, flashbangs and dispersion grenades, uh, some of them with projectiles, uh, some of them with smoke. Uh, they used a, a wide variety of things that day. Uh, and, you know, the, the launchers for some of these shells, these like scat shells, which uh, uh, they're like 40 millimeter shells, and they have up to four sub shells in them when they explode, and the four spread out and either unleash tear gas or they fire projectiles. These were being aimed directly at people's bodies. Uh, and, you know, that's something that we don't have in the documentary, but it's a story I'm working on now is a gentleman who, who was shot in the leg by one of these, uh, one of these munitions and it, it, it shattered his femur. And he ended up uh, losing six months of time and uh, the insurance company uh, ended up uh, on the hook for a quarter million dollars in expenses. So, you know, that the potential for injury was real. You know, we have examples of people who were injured. They were burned, uh, you know, projectile embedding in someone's cheek. So there were examples uh, of the danger of having these things go off from above where they explode at eye level. So it's, uh, you know, and, and the crowd did not move. What they did is they got angry. They felt that they were peaceful and and many of them walked up there not knowing they were technically violating the law. They never saw any signs and so I, I think that explains why people were standing there with their flags and their signs and some were praying, uh, you know, singing the national anthem, chanting USA, things like that. But when this started at about 1.30 in the afternoon, uh, the entire tenor of the day, it set the tone, it stirred the pot and it rippled throughout the capital. Uh, the word spread very quickly. Uh, and then we started seeing some of this being done in other places. So, uh, you know, that, that really was kind of the match that lit everything. Let, let's show the next video here. Jump into that. Help 
push forward. Hold on, I'm gonna strike it. I'm gonna strike it. So I think we show some of this officer in the documentary, but these are clips of him, I believe the same one we don't, we actually did not include. Uh, what's the importance of this footage we just watched? Well, there were two things about this footage that I thought was instructive. Number one was it just gives a flavor of what the things were like behind the police line. Oh, did Joe freeze on us? Okay, okay, you're good now. Go ahead, sorry, Joe. Okay. Um, well, the, one of the big things was just a, a scene setter. What, what were the police conditions back there? Uh, how were police interacting with the crowd? And this particular officer stood out to us because he moved, he roved up the entire police line and back in a nonstop movement, uh, lobbed munitions, ran out of munitions, went and, and uh, grabbed munitions off of other officers. And when he, when he was out, was very frustrated uh, and seemed almost desperate to get more. Uh, it, it struck us as, uh, you know, very unusual. You know, we did not see a lot of officers acting like this, but uh, this, uh, he, I have to believe he, he was responsible for firing more munitions than any other officer back there. Uh, and you don't, you don't fully see that in these clips. Uh, this is just a small taste. The much more graphic things are in the, in the documentary. But, uh, you know, it, it it shows a, a mindset on this officer's part anyway uh, that you know the uh, the attacks using explosives we just had to continue that had to continue it and uh, and lob these into the crowd so uh, you know this just really gives a gives kind of a flavor of what things were like behind the lines I know we know who that officer is and I know we know also that he has a bit of a history with this as well what do we know about his history well, I believe there was there was some litigation uh, going back, uh, allegations anyway of, of uh, excessive force, um, and so you know, and we continue to look into that uh, to see if if you know this isn't part of any kind of a pattern uh, in terms of you know being present at crowd control events or things like that. So that's one of the one of the questions we still have to fully answer. Um, but it, it's, it seemed very unusual, and, and in contrast you know, to officers that we did observe who, uh, who took a much more low-key approach to dealing with the crowd. And that's what we see, too, that in, in some of the video evidence, we, again, we show a lot more of this particular officer in the documentary, but other footage we have of him, he's walking up to just random people and just shooting them with tasers, dropping them, not arresting them, suggesting he's just doing it just to instigate the crowd again grabbing these explosive munitions off the vests of other officers, pulling the pin, lobbing them into the crowd, wild stuff like this. And I know that you and I discussed this, we, we, again, we talked about in the documentary, but one of the big things with this is that, again, you're either, in normal crowd control operations like this, rather, again, arresting people or you're dispersing people, and what they're doing is agitating people and agitating people in ways that could have caused stampedes, could have caused significant injuries, may have actually caused significant injuries and death, as we show in the documentary. 
Some of the deaths may have been partially caused by this. We do show evidence of that. And again, it's, it's violating the law. These, some of these officers should be in prison for this, I believe. And it's, it's uh, flagrant. But the bigger part is this, is that could this actually constitute entrapment because of the way they're doing this? And Joe, I know you saw some of these, this other footage as well. I mean, what does the whole picture show us with that officer in particular? Well, I, I mean, something that we wanted to take a look at was, you know, was there a mindset uh, by the police uh, to view the crowd as as something that they would expect to do bad things or, or you know, people that needed to be treated roughly? And, you know, I, I, we do not know the answer to that, but there, there's, there seemed to be in certain spots uh, in just kind of an atmosphere, uh, in in some cases of fear. I mean, we, you know, I had witnesses talk to me about some younger officers who looked absolutely terrified, and uh, and at the time there was nothing happening. So I, you you wonder just what was what was the briefing going into this uh, into this operation, um, and because that, that can speak to how things can get out of hand on both sides. I mean, yeah. certainly once this, uh, once some of this stuff started and you saw uh, people in the crowd acting up, there were some, some incredible fights that went on. Uh, and oftentimes those started with a strike of a baton. Uh, but we also had agitators. And, and this is one of the difficult things with this entire event is, uh, is trying to find out the stories of the agitators. Uh, and, and not all of them were, were people opposed to Trump. I mean, we had uh, we had people who were agitating that may, may say, hey, I was a Trump supporter, but yet they acted like a provocateur, uh, just appeared to be looking to start trouble. And there were always cameras nearby. So, uh, you know, that those are just a few of the of the troubling questions about this is that, you know, what's the cause and effect? And, and it, it really varied across the Capitol. Let's show the next clip, actually. We have a few clips to show you on. Again, a lot of these have not been seen publicly before. The cops are beating the fuck out of that guy. I apologize for the language, folks. But yeah, Joe, I mean, that, that's shocking. What, what was happening here? It just looked like an explosion of anger. And, and that, this is something that uh, Stan Kephart, our use of force expert, uh, that appears in the film uh, mentioned that he saw across uh, a lot of the video is that uh, was not seeing crowd control uh, in some spots he called it a, a police a police mob versus uh, a public mob and you know it was a melee you know a large scale bar fight uh, in that case you know somebody was was taking it to the head and it's 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 shocking. I mean, I, with that group, big of a group around, that uh, person certainly could have been uh, immobilized and detained. So it, it, uh, there was just far too much of that that day. And I, I don't think these images and and this video and uh, have been part of the story that has been told so far in, in the public square. Well, and, the, and that video is shocking too because it looks like there's no other protesters around. It's a large group of police, and one of them's on top of the guy beating him on the ground. Um, they don't look like they're in danger. Some of them are standing casually around, and so it does raise some questions. Over, I don't want to jump to conclusions, but it raises some serious questions over what the story is there, 
and why they feel that that level of violence is necessary. Do, do we know anything more about that clip? No, we don't. It, you know, the, the, obviously the context in a lot of these is so important. We did see uh, on video uh, protesters who tried to get up the stairs that the police had blocked off. And, uh, and those folks were always caught in, in I believe uh, most of them were detained, uh, which is which is the proper thing to do. So, you know, it's certainly entirely possible this individual was making a break for it or trying to trying to run into another restricted area. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and even if, if the person had lashed out uh, to, to sit on top of them and, and just do, uh, you know, looks like a, you know, a punching bag. So, um, you know, but we, do, we don't know the full context, what this fellow, uh, how he became apparent to the police. Uh, but, you know, it, it's that, that kind of reaction, certainly you, you, you would think there aren't any circumstances that would justify something like that. Let's show the next clip we have here. Oh, God damn it! Oh, my God, you hurt me bad! Please! Oh, I got hit in the head. I'm bleeding now. What's happening here, Joe? Well, that was uh, at the mouth of the uh, Lower West Terrace Tunnel. And this gentleman uh, was being pushed out that the police uh, had unleashed some gas in the tunnel, which actually started a, a panic stampede. And this fellow was more at the back end of that. And they continued to push people out of the tunnel. And, and he got smashed in the head with a, with a baton, which, which is a potentially lethal move. Um, you know, that, that uh, police are not trained to strike the head uh, a spherical object with with a blunted object so you can see he started bleeding quite a bit but yet his focus um, on this body cam that, that continues he's begging for them to help Roseanne Boyland who is off to his right laying on the ground who's uh, unconscious and and very likely pulseless and he, and he can see this and he's just begging it's, it's just it's heartbreaking to listen to him he says please 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 help her save her life save her life he wasn't thinking of himself, but uh, turn your attention here. There's somebody that needs you. Somebody's dying. And you can hear uh, Roseanne's uh, travel companion from that day, Justin Winchell, uh, pleading. I need a medic. She's dying. She's dying. Help. She's dead. She's dead. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to listen to. But, you know, this shows you that despite being injured, this fellow was still very concerned uh, that that Roseanne Boylan be given medical attention, uh, which did not happen until protesters dragged her away from the police line after she had been she had been beaten uh, with a stick by by a police officer, uh, and and at that point it was very likely too late for her. Well, you know, we we go pretty in depth. We we really show the whole context of the death of Roseanne Boylan in the documentary. So, I know the D.C. coroner who himself has kind of a weird story. Um, maybe we won't get into that, and maybe we can actually. The DC coroner said it was a natural death. They said that she died of amphetamine overdose because she had been on Ritalin 
you know, it's, an, it's a common medication for people who have uh, attention deficit disorder, ADHD. She's been on it most of her life, but they claim that she had Ritalin in her system and they call that amphetamine overdose. But the video footage we show, the she's in this tunnel trying to, I don't know whether trying to enter or what. Police deploy smoke in that, in that these tear gas. Stan Keffart notes in the documentary that when you do that, you don't normally do that in an enclosed area because it sucks the oxygen out and you can kill people. People, and then you of course risk causing a stampede. People do stampede. Um, Roseanne Boylan is trampled, she collapses, and then people watch her as she dies. And a lot of the video footage that people have seen actually where people are fighting with the police is there, but the full context is they, they're watching this woman die and they're begging the police to help her and the police are beating her while she's unconscious. And you're showing a video now really showing a whole other side of that too is that this people begging the police to help her and the police are beating these people. You know, tell us about this, Joe. I mean, it's, it's shocking. Well, really, the story of the, the Lower West Terrace Tunnel is told uh, through body cam footage that, uh, you know, we obtained with the help of a, a real talented video investigator named Gary McBride from yeah, Texas. Gary, Gary is incredible, by the way. Yeah, actually, yeah, that, he, yeah. He, uh, you know, he went through this with us and pointed a lot of these things out that, uh, that we show in the documentary and, and the pleading. And, and Gary actually filed a uh, use of force complaint against the officer who struck uh, Roseanne Boylan with the walking stick. He was, he was so troubled by it, he filed a complaint with the Metropolitan Police Department uh, in September of 2021. And after two months of waiting, they came back and told him that they determined that level of force was, quote, objectively reasonable. Uh, and that was their official determination on on the treatment that she received. Uh, we have asked to uh, to see the report with the analysis of how they reached that conclusion, which uh, they have denied, and uh, we're in litigation right now uh, with the department to try to obtain that report. So we can understand more about uh, how they came to the conclusion that it was objectively reasonable to strike uh, a pulseless woman. Uh, what she needed were strikes to the chest uh, chest compressions uh, to to get her heart started again, uh, you know, not being struck in yeah. the in the ribs and the head uh, with a, an aged hardened walking stick. So it the the body cam just tells the story, and each officer's audio is a little different. So you're able to pick up, uh, and this is something Gary pointed out, you're able to pick up uh, different bits of the story depending uh, whose body cam you're wa you're watching. And, you know, and then you combine it with open source video shot from the other side looking in. And it, it's, it's just, it's a frightening, frightening story. And, and it's so tragic that, uh, that uh, Roseanne did not get the help that she needed when she needed it. Let's show another clip here. Joe, what, what are we looking at here? Well, that, that uh, battering ram that they were using to try to break through a window, um, it's a, a long cardboard tube. And, you know, we, we certainly don't know for certain this is the same object, 
But I had a story about a month ago uh, from a gentleman who was standing next to Ray Epps, uh, who you know many people believe was a was a provocateur and is indeed seen on video, imploring people to go inside the Capitol. You know, starting the night before. But he was standing with Ray Epps at a police line, and uh, this gentleman was in the Marine Corps, so he was, you know, full of the moment, seeing all the people, and he he shouted out, "Oorah!" You know, it's the you know, a Marine chant, and uh, and Epps heard this, and he says Epps came up to him and said, "Semper Fidelis, Devil Dog, we've got to slow this crowd down, or they're going to f up the entire plan." And at the time, this this gentleman did not have any idea what that meant. He just observed it, filed it away. Uh, and a short time later, he said, uh, Epps went into the crowd and picked a gentleman out that was dressed all, all in dark clothing. And, and he took two other men with him and they went up into the corner uh, of that lower terrace there and opened a utility hatch. You know, this is a small hatch that took the lid off and uh, pulled out a long two by four, 10 to 12 foot long, a cardboard tube that looks precisely like this one, uh, and there was also a small ladder that was brought out. Now, our yeah. our witness told us he he considered those siege tools, and as you can see here, uh, the cardboard tube is being used as a battering ram. So we we know that uh, this type of uh, this type of tool was used for nefarious purposes. Uh, you know, in we we saw the the lumber, the two by four. Uh, there were probably more than one of those on the Capitol grounds that were used to smash through the windows. So it, it's, uh, this kind of shows the, the back end. You know, we, we heard the story from someone who saw those things being removed from the utility hatch. There, it's being used to, to do criminal damage. And this is important too, because you know, folks, we're not trying to write off that there was violence on both sides that day. We're not trying to write off that people breached the Capitol. What we're emphasizing is that the people who were the main instigators and the ones who did in fact break the windows and so on, these are the people for the most part are not being investigated. The people who actually did commit the crimes that again are being framed for this whole narrative, they're the ones who the police and the FBI seem to have no interest in and who even New York Times is writing apology pieces for like Ray Epps who was even caught on video, which we show in the documentary again. If you haven't seen it, watch it, please. The Real Story, January 6th. Uh, Ray Epps, who was even caught on video, which we show in the documentary, telling people that they need to go into the Capitol, premeditated the day before, and then also leading some of the people who breached the Capitol uh, going through these police lines. And again, this is important because we show tools used, premeditation, discussions, and again, it raises questions of why are the real instigators not being investigated? Let's, sh let's show another clip here. Show another clip here. Oh, we're out, we're out. That's the end for it. All right. I know we have a ton of footage, actually, Joe. And, um, you know, again, the documentary, we had to kind of pick and choose what to include uh, that to really, I think, show an accurate picture. And so, of course, we couldn't include like everything we had, but we have a lot more that the people, I think people have probably never seen before. Also for our viewers too, Epic Times, we are in the process of suing in order to get more footage, in order to get real documents. And so we're working very hard to find out, really answer some of these questions. And Joe, I guess just last question here. You know, based on the totality of the picture you're looking at, 
you're, I think, probably one of the, maybe the top reporter on this stuff. The totality of the picture, what do you think happened that day? Why do you think J6 deserves the, the attention we're giving it? Well, and, and honestly, that is still an open question. Uh, you know, when I started on this project, and we called it the uh, legacy of troubling questions, and that is still true today. This was definitely not as it was billed, and, and this, honestly, the coverage that I saw from day one, uh, the, the, the terminology used uh, in harmony was almost looked scripted. Uh, words that, that one, one might even think were uh, focus group tested. Things like storming the Capitol, you know, that of course you gives you a vision of D-Day, uh, storming the beaches of Normandy, uh, insurrection. You know, these are these are very key words that are being used in the January 6th committee. So, uh, and this this notion that this was some huge, large-scale armed mob, uh, hell bent on taking over the government. Uh, you know, the video evidence, and, and only a small portion of the video evidence is, is public, but the video evidence that we have seen does not support that. Uh, and, and we think it's important to take a look at all of it, you know, and we, we look at the Trump supporters or people dressed as Trump supporters who are committing criminal acts and are being prosecuted for it. Um, but, you know, we've had instigation that hasn't been explained. And the key to this whole thing, I am convinced, will be the suspicious actors issue. The more we learn about it and the more of them that, that we identify, you know, we know of a, at least 100 of them at this point, um, and th there are probably more. So I believe one of the keys to finding out exactly what happened that day is still going to lie with the suspicious actors. Folks, I want you all to do something. If you want to read this book, The Rape of the Mind, uh, about menticide, mental genocide, by Juice Merlu, look into the burning of the Reichstag and how the Nazis framed this incident in order to gain power in Germany. And then look at the correlations between the burning of the Reichstag and that whole fake scandal and the way that what we're watching with J6 is being used politically. I think you'll find very concerning overlap with these narratives. Also, folks, please watch the documentary we did on this. There's a lot of evidence that people have never seen before. And this, I can tell you, and maybe, maybe Joe, you feel the same way, this has been one of the big things for me, is because after that documentary came out, I know you and I have both been doing a lot of radio interviews and TV interviews. One thing that shocked me is a lot of, even a lot of journalists, even on the conservative side, they've never seen some of this evidence that we show in the documentary. They, they've never heard a lot of this stuff. And it made me kind of realize that like, wow, like the things that for me are obvious, most people, it's not obvious too. And I think the reason is they've never seen the evidence. And, and, and Joe, have you seen that as well on that? Absolutely, and, and it actually makes me think of another point, the importance of, of uh, people out there in the public. I believe uh, most of the video that was shot that day has probably remained in private hands. Uh, things that were not posted on social media, which is how the government would, uh, would issue subpoenas for. But uh, some of the, the footage we showed here today came from, uh, came from a reader uh, who supplied it to us anonymously. Um, and, you know, so I would encourage if there are people that have video, they were there, uh, you know, when we can, we can show that we would not reveal their identities. Uh, 
even you know even if they've been in contact with the with the justice system, we would love to see that video because uh, I I still believe that so many explanations can be found uh, on the cell phones of people who were there that day. So that uh, I would encourage anybody to you know to contact us and and we can continue to to flesh out this picture. Yeah, folks. Yeah. So if you have, if you do have video, get it to us. We are putting the whole picture together. Um, also, check out again the documentary. Please watch this documentary if you, have, if you have not seen it. And please spread this documentary. Send it to your friends, send it to your family members, send it to anyone you can. Because when the public sees the real evidence and the whole picture of that evidence, the narrative changes. And the truth really needs to get out on this. Folks, thank you all for being here. Joe, thank you for joining me in this special episode. You bet. And folks, again, as always, please take care of yourselves, stay informed, and stay free. Thank you. That was a shooting gallery up there. She suffered a fairly severe beating, and the, the video is, is pretty graphic. There is no words to express the way that I feel right now. We're labeled as terrorists. We're labeled as racist. Justice, for us, it, it, it seems almost impossible. The crowd was desperate. It's not fun to watch somebody die. And they knew she was in mortal peril. If they can lie about me, I know for a fact that they can lie about everybody else that was there that day. the biggest fraud perpetrated on the American people. It's all by design. They have not asked the hard questions. Why was the Capitol intentionally unsecure that day? It's the same interests who brought us Russiagate and everything since then. The way they're going after people is absolutely insane. They're out for blood and they're getting it. They appear to be winning. Nothing about this is normal. Now I describe it as an inside job.